Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, as we continue through the book of Colossians, we've seen who Jesus is, that he's above everything, that he created everything, that he rules over everything, that he dwells in the body of Christ, which is the church. And because of that, we have freedom in him. We are free from man's opinions. We answer to God, which means that we are not sort of tossed around by whether people like us or don't like us, whether people approve of us or not approve of us. And the Bible, in the beginning of chapter 3, he calls us to seek those things which are above, not those things which are below. And that's the sort of the, the founding principle of living the Christian life, seeking Christ in heaven, not stuff on, on earth. And in the next part, he says, don't do these things. Don't be angry. Don't be wrathful. Don't be unkind. Don't be covetous. Avoid worshiping the earth, worshiping yourself. But all that's sort of either high-minded or negative. Where's the practical day-to-day instruction for how to follow Christ? Yeah, seek things in heaven. Great. How? Don't do bad things. Great. What do I do? So following Christ means living day-to-day like Christ. And the Bible doesn't leave that to our imagination. It tells us exactly what it means to follow Christ. So in this verses 12 through 15, we're going to see the practical results of being a follower of Christ. So read with me, starting verse 12. Therefore... As the elect of God, so actually go back to verse 11, the end it says, but Christ is all and in all, and then we get our text, therefore, since Christ is all and in all, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. In the previous passage it said, put off the old man with its sin of selfishness and fornication and sexual morality and lying. Put it off. Now, Put something else on. You see, that's what Christianity does. You get rid of something, and you get something. It's an exchange. So we put on the new man, and in verse 10 it says, and put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. There's the theological principle, and in our passage we're going to see what that looks like. So we're going to see three things here. What does it mean to be in Christ, to put on the new man? It means a new identity a new life together, and a new internal compass. So we're somebody new, we have a new way of living, and we have something new inside of us that guides us. So look at this thing, new image bearers. So in verse 10, the previous passage says, and put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So what Paul is doing here is he's calling us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1. So in our text, in verse 12, it says, Therefore, as the elect of God, elect means chosen. Chosen to do what? 
Chosen for what? So when he says image, we're chosen to follow Christ, to be in his image. Where was that first used in the Bible? Genesis chapter 1, there was nothing. And then there was something. There was nothing except for God. And God says, let there be light. And then he created the world, he created the animals, and then finally he created man. And Genesis says, then God said, after he created the trees and the plants, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over all the earth and over everything in the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is a fundamental principle for us. Who are we? Well, first, we're created by God in his image. So that means every single person that you ever meet has some reflection of God in them. And so a practical application is how you treat them indicates how you treat God. Now, you notice what, when this says in his image, there's no caveats. There's no if they have money, if they don't have money, if they look like you, if they, don't, if they act right. Everyone's created in the image of God, which means everyone reflects God, which means your behavior reflects what you think of God. So if you mistreat people, you mistreat God. So that's the beginning. That's the first creation. The, the first image was Adam and Eve. But then what happened? They said, so God created them. Look, look how he created them. According to our likeness and our image, so that they can have dominion over the earth. Who is God? He's the creator, but he's the king. He's the Lord. He's the ruler. So when we reflect his image, what do we do? He gave us what we do. We have dominion over the earth. We rule over the earth. That's what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. They were supposed to plant gardens and build houses and make roads and control what God had given them. But what did they do instead? Satan comes to them and they said, yeah, God says that you can reflect him, but wouldn't you rather reflect yourselves? Wouldn't you rather just do what you want to do? You can be your own God. You don't need to be in the image of God. You can be God. And so Adam and Eve chose to be God or attempt instead of reflecting God. And as a result, all of us are in the same position. Sin has cut us off from the king. And as a result, you look at the world around us, it's falling apart, there's, there's strife, there's divisions. Division, there's the key. You see, Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship with God. In his image, carrying out his will, then they were divided. And now you're divided from your family. You're divided from your money. There's division in your own body. There's division in politics. There's division in the world. All because people want to follow themselves instead of God. So what does God do? Well, as we go through the Old Testament, we see him try, attempt, to create a new Adam out of Israel. Israel was supposed to make up for what Adam and Eve did. And so he says to Israel, for you are a holy people. This is, you know, in the, the desert, Moses is saying this to them. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the people on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in numbers than the other people, for you are the least of all people. Those three words there. You're a holy people, you're chosen, and God loves them. Israel was supposed to do what Adam and Eve didn't do. Be 
be chosen by God, be loved by God, be set apart by God to represent God. What did Israel do? None of those things. They worshiped false gods. They sacrificed their children. They uh, abused the poor. They, they were not a representation of God. They were so bad that God eventually carried them off into captivity. As if to say, better for you to be no country than to be a bad country. So the problem hasn't been solved. But then we come to Colossians, and in chapter 1, we see Jesus born. You see, to be the image of God, you must be seen. Adam and Eve were physical. God is spirit, but Adam and Eve were an image. Israel was an image. So for Jesus to be image, he had to be born. And so in Colossians chapter 1, it says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now remember what image meant? It meant dominion. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. So then this man, Christ Jesus, is the image of God, both by calling and by nature. The new image, doing what Adam and Eve refused to do, doing what Israel refused to do, doing what we refuse to do, which is submit to God and follow it. Christ did that. So then in our passage, it says, put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. That word renewed there. You see, we're born in the image of Adam. But that's not good enough, is it? It's corrupted, it's divided, it's marred. So God says, I'm going to recreate you. Not in the image of Adam, he already failed. In the image of Christ who succeeded. So when we put on the new man, we are recreated to the image bearer, Christ. You see, there's a division between those who are in Adam's image and those who are in Christ's image. And it's not a process. It's a conversion. It's a recreation. Just like in Genesis 1, there was nothing, and then there was something. There was an act of God that created something in an instant. So for us, you're either uncreated in Adam's image, or you're newly created in Christ's image. It's a sharp divide. It's the new birth. What does birth convey? It's an an action, it's an immediate action. There was, you don't see the baby, and then you do see the baby. So before we get to this passage, ask yourself, has there been a time in my life where I was changed? Where I was not with God, and then I was with God? When I was dead, but then I was raised. When I was lost, but then I was found. Has there been a time in your life where that's happened? This is not a self-help message, though it may seem to be helping you. It's for people who have been changed into the image of Christ. Regeneration, rebirth. We unite with Christ, recreated in his image, and now we live in that image. You see, who we are dictates how we live. When Adam and Eve were created, they were created to rule. When we were recreated, we were recreated to live as Christ, as sons, as kings. You, if you're in Christ, are to live your life as a king, as a son of God. See how powerful your identity is? 
By knowing who you are, you see how you're supposed to live. See, the Old Testament was all about law. They listed out every case, what you did with your animals, what you did with your food, and what you did with your clothes. But the New Testament just says, be who you are. God has recreated us into the image of his son, so now act like it. You don't need rules. You need a change. So when we ask ourselves, who are we? We are either the sons of Satan or the sons of God. And there's no middle ground. So are you living in the image of Christ? So how does the image of Christ look? Look at verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, remember, the, remember Israel was the elect of God, holy and beloved. You see, God first does something for you. So you don't work your way to God. You don't find God. God finds you. And that means change first comes when you know the truth. You first have to receive it, then you can live it out. So often we're, we're on a journey, as it were, to get to somewhere. And we're like, we're just on a journey, and when we get there, we'll be different. Well, the problem with that is it depends on you following the path. But what if you stop following the path? What if you get tired one day? What if you took the wrong path? What the Bible is saying is, first, God chose you. First, God set you apart. First, God loved you. Now do something. That's a profound difference between Christianity and every single other religion. Why is Christianity different? Because Christianity says God first loves you, changes you, and then calls you to follow. If we reverse that, we're going to live a life of trying to meet God's standards so he'll love us. You ever had someone who was nice to you when you were nice to them? Who loved you when you loved them? Who may say they loved you, but they didn't like you? That's not God. That may be your parents. That may be your spouse. That may be your kids. That's not God. God first loved us. Now he calls us to do something. He sets us and says, you are perfectly called secure. You can't do anything to change that. You are my son no matter what. Now do the right thing. So it frees us to pursue Christ without the fear of losing Christ. Amen. Christianity is too good to be true. You can't lose it. All you have to do is say, Christ, I want to trust you. And God's like, you're in. You can do nothing wrong. Now, because that's who you are, that's what Christ has done for us. He says, here's how you live. Because you're a king... Because you're the son of God, here's how you live. Put on. You see, because God loves us, we want to love him. And what, is, what do we do to love him? We put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another. This is why you're a member of a church. You see what the Bible says? If you want to follow Christ, you need somebody else with you. You can't follow Jesus by yourself. Because you can't keep these very commands. Called, beloved, now put on tender mercies towards who? Kindness towards who? Humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with the church. You cannot obey Christ's commands if you don't have a bunch of people around you getting on your nerves. You need people to get on your nerves so that you can follow Christ. This is what it means to follow Christ, because that's what he did. He had sinners 
who he said, now that you've sinned against me, I can save you. Now that you realize how bad you are. So when you say, why do we have a church? What's the point of this membership? Why are we here? It's so that we can follow Christ and love each other and put up with each other like God did for us. You see, this is all about unity. Bearing one another, forgiving one another. You see how it's mutual? Everybody's on the same page. Everybody's got problems, so everybody's bearing with one another. Is there anybody that's ever been in this church that got on your nerves? Good. Nobody here? Okay. So just in the future when someone maybe shows up, none of us, of course, and you're like, oh, that person, man, they keep on doing that thing. Perfect. Now you have an opportunity to be like Christ. When something gets just stuck on you and you're like, ah, every time, that's your opportunity to follow Christ. You see, Christ, we see who he is because he had to suffer. So we see who we are when we suffer. We want to avoid suffering, don't we? But I was like, no, suffering is where you get to live like Christ. So we bear with one another, like God. In John chapter 17, this is the very last prayer that Jesus ever prayed on this earth. You know, who he, you know who he prayed for at the very end? Not his disciples. He prayed for us. He prayed for his disciples at the beginning of the prayer, but then he said, and for those who will follow me. So when Jesus was going to the cross and he went to pray, he specifically thought about this church. Because he's God, he could see into the future, and he said, Chesapeake Baptist Church, what is the one thing that I can pray for Chesapeake Baptist Church before I die for them? Now, wouldn't you like to know what he said? That they'll be courageous? That they'll do the right thing? Now, here's what he said. I do not pray for these alone, talking about his disciples who are with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I give to them, that they may be one just as we are one. What did Jesus want for this church primarily? That we would all come together as one body following Christ. You see how profound the unity of the church is? Jesus said, I've got one prayer left before I die. I pray that Chesapeake Baptist Church will be unified. Now, when we think about following Christ, What's our priority now? Following him together. So bear with one another. You're never going to find a church that you like. There's always going to be problems. So the Bible says when you get to those group of people that get on your nerves, that don't do what you think they should do, bear with one another. Forgive one another. Self-denying virtues. Curtis Vaughn says, bear with means a willingness to bear with those whose faults or unpleasant traits are an irritant to them, putting up with things we dislike in others. See, we want people to change, don't we? We'll, we'll put up with you until you change. What's the Bible say? How long does Jesus put up with us? There's your model. There's your model. As soon as you stop getting on Jesus' nerves with your sin and he puts up with you and loves you and doesn't push you away, then you can stop dealing with other people. But since we all know how weak we are, that's the behavior. So we're unified, not because we're right, but because we bear with one another. And how does that happen? Ultimately, look in verse 14. 
So even as Christ forgave you, you must also do. Unless you know that Christ forgave you, you will not be a unified church. You can't do it. There's too many problems here. There's too many people who are going to sin against you. So we look to Christ, and then above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. You see, you can be humble and not be loving. You can be long-suffering. You can bear with people and not love them. Do any of you work? You bear with your employees and your, and your bosses, don't you? But you don't love them. We're not a church that just gets along. That's not unity. Unity is we actually love each other. And when it says put on, it's talking about clothes. And so when you put on love, it says you bind everything up. All the virtues, all the humility, all the long-suffering, all the forgiveness. You bind it up because you love each other. As Christ loved us. To be the body of Christ must mean that you love like Christ. Luke chapter 6, Jesus gives us an example. He says, but if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he, God, is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. See, if you come into a church where everybody loves each other and gets along, of course you're going to get along. But what about when you come into a church where people are unkind to you, where they're ungrateful? Now you need something more powerful than just community. And so what the Bible says is look to Jesus, not to each other. Look to Jesus and see how he is kind to you, how he is forgiving. Now look to your brothers and sisters. That's the key to forgiveness is don't look at the sin that they did against you. You look at Christ. How do you grow? Look at Jesus. How do you get over that bitterness that you've had for a long, long time? You look at Jesus. How do you put up with that person who's always taking from you? You look to Jesus. You see, the world will tell you, remove negative people from your life and surround yourself with positive people. That's not the Bible. The Bible says surround yourself with people who love Jesus and then learn to love each other. Lift each other up. Bear with the weakness of others as Christ loves you. Can you imagine being a part of a church like that? Where you're just there because you're there and you know that everyone else there is going to bear with you, but you know no matter what, you're going to love people. That's a spiritual change that has to happen inside of you. You cannot create that. You cannot work that up. You have to pray the Holy Spirit will show Christ to you and change you. And then you put on love. There's no unity without every member looking to each other, forgiving one another, bearing with one another, loving one another. You see the one another there? If you leave here and you go to, to another church, or whether you think, should I go to church, how are you going to love one another if there's not a group of people who get on your nerves? So all the people in this church who get on your nerves are sent to you by God. They've been sent to you so that you can grow in Christ. Now think about that person. God gave them to you. You know why your wife gets on your nerves? You know why your husband gets on your nerves? You know why your kids get on your nerves? You know why your parents get on your nerves? 
so that you can be like Jesus. You see, you didn't know how selfish you were until you got into a relationship. You didn't know how short-tempered you were until your kid was up all night, until your spouse just kept on doing that one thing year after year. Then you're like, oh, now the real Christianity kicks in. Now, do I really love Jesus, or am I going to do what I would never admit I want to do? So you grow in community. You want to be like Jesus? Get around a bunch of other people who need you to love them. And then do it. Bear with them. So when we talk about unity in this church, we have to remember that this unity doesn't just come from our sort of idiosyncrasies or our preferences or people's behavior. There is somebody out there whose goal is to recreate what happened to Adam and Eve. You see, Satan is a real person. I know the Western world, secular world, kind of dismisses spiritual forces like Satan. But that's not going to help us when Satan's after us. So what the Bible says is that Satan is as a roaring lion doing what? Trying to bring division into this church. That's his goal. He showed up in the Bible doing what? Dividing. And he's going to show up in this church doing the same thing. But we're prepared for it. The Bible prepares us for it. And what Satan's going to do is he's going to appeal to those feelings inside of you that he can identify. Those feelings of greed, feelings of selfishness, the feelings of, of, of weariness. He's going to appeal to those. And you're going to have a conflict inside of you. Has it happened yet? Someone comes to you and you have this conflict. You're like, should I tell him what I really think or should I not? And you have this conflict, don't you? What do you do? How do you decide? And so we have this new image bearer, new life, but now inside us is a new compass. Something that guides us. Remember what the Old Testament did? Don't work on Sunday, on Saturday. Don't wear this kind of clothing. Don't eat this kind of food. Wear this. Marry that. It was telling you exactly how you lived. The New Testament doesn't do that. It says that wasn't good enough. Instead, just be like Jesus. Well, what's that mean? So what God has done is he's given us something inside of us to guide us through all the decisions in life. Should I confront someone or should I forgive them? Should I go here or should I go there? Should I bear with them or should I ignore them? So what's the compass? Look in verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Now that word rule is interesting. It doesn't mean like a king. It means like a referee. You ever seen like a wrestling match or a boxing match and there's a dispute? Or like a football game? Remember when the NFL had the replay? So there was a flag and then they're like, I don't know if that's right. And they went into the little box and they... And whatever they said, the field did. The teams were never happy with the calls. But whatever the referee said, that was the law. That's what this word means. It's the exact same word for a referee or an umpire. So when you've got conflict inside of you of how you should treat other people or what you should do, who decides? The peace of God. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. So what is the peace of God? It's undoing what Satan has done. Satan has brought division, and we live with it. Now what? 
Galatians 3 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. That's a preview of how Satan's going to try to divide you. You see, Christ makes everybody one. But then Paul says, but watch out, because Satan's going to try to make it slave-free. Male, woman. Uh, male, female. Black, white. Satan has been working in America and in this church for a long time to divide us. Randy Woodley, who's a Cherokee uh, Native American, he's a theologian, but he reflects on what it meant to be a Native American and a Christian. And he, came, he, he, he was able to discern part of Satan's plan, which was not just division, but control. You see, what did Satan want? He wanted to be God. So he divided man from God so that he could rule over them. That's why the Bible says we are slaves to sin. So first Satan divides, then he controls. So uh, Randy says, as we submit ourselves to the creator, so he's saying, in the Garden of Eden, this is how it should have been, as we submit ourselves to the creator, he gives us rule over his creation. That's Adam and Eve. And that makes Satan jealous. Satan wants to be in control. So in the church, as we submit to each other in unity, diverse as we are, we have more authority. Satan will go to great lengths to stop us from walking together in unity. He says church division can come through any circumstances, from the color of the people to the color of the carpet. Satan doesn't care. He does not care the means as long as the result happens. We joke about dividing over the color of carpet. It happens. Divide over the color of skin. It happens. It's Satan's plan to undo what Christ has done. The spirit of division polarizes and segments brothers and sisters in Christ. But then he goes further. The following close on its heels comes the demonic spirit of uniformity, whose task is to match people with similar sin attitudes. You see, Satan gets you away from God. Then he gets you all together with people just like you so you feel comfortable. Everybody's sinning the same. And if everybody's sinning the same, who cares? So what the Bible says here is let the peace of God rule. But what Satan wants is he wants something else to be the umpire. Something that you're comfortable with. Something that feels natural. So the peace of God is God-focused. Satan's peace is man-focused. And how does man feel good when he's around people like him? So, division can only work temporarily. In order for Satan to have a lasting victory, uniformity has to take over. It is the task of uniformity to control, and that is the root of Satan's plan, to enslave us. But Christ has come to make us free. So what Christ has, what he has done here is he said, there's only one unifying principle, and it's nothing that man has done. It's the peace of God. Christ has unified us by what he's done, and any time something comes between us and the peace of God, that's Satan. Now, uniformity, and this is where we have to be careful, this is where we have to go to the Bible and check our hearts, uniformity doesn't feel wrong. It doesn't feel wrong. Division can feel wrong. You're like, ah, oh, we're all fighting and we're conflicting, but when everybody's exactly the same, you don't notice. 
That's what Satan has done in America. You see, the division happened a while back, and everybody got into their own groups, and everybody's fine in their own group, and they don't realize, what about the other people? And when you bring people together in a church, then you realize, oh, there was a reason we were separated. And so conflict arises. And what our natural inclination is going to be is to say, when the conflict arises from different people, the umpire in our flesh is going to say, get away from them. Remove yourself from the conflict. But the peace of God does what? It reconciles. So a church that follows the umpire of Christ will not remove themselves from people who are different. They'll work past the differences. They'll reconcile around the one thing that unites us, which is Christ. You see how powerful this is? Every single division in this world would be easier if you just got away from the people that bothered you. But Christ does the opposite. He says, nope, bind yourselves together so you'll be forced to look at Jesus. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will rule your hearts and minds. And then you'll have a church of people that are so diverse that everyone in the world says, how do you get along? And we're like, Jesus? I don't know. Jesus gets us along. And the more we talk about Jesus and his work, the less we're going to have a problem with people who are not like us. And the more we get upset with people who are not like us, the less we look at Christ. To which also you were called. Here's what God called you to do. Remember, you're elect. Called to one body. One body. And the only way to have one body of people who are diverse and to encourage diversity is to point to Christ. And recognize that Christ loves everybody in his body the same. Do we? How does love work? How does Christ's love work? He leaves what is his, and he comes to what is ours, and he sacrifices. And he gives up his comfort. And he puts himself in the middle of fighting and division, and he gives. How are we going to have a diverse church when the members say, I'll give up what's mine for the sake of others? That's how it works, just like Jesus. And then this word at the end, and be thankful. What? Where'd that come from? We're talking about giving and loving and bearing with and then be thankful. Seems like a different subject. It's not the different subject. It's the same subject. Because what does division, where does it come from? Me. I don't like that. I think we should do that. They're wrong. Division is all about my preferences or my positions versus your positions. But what is thankfulness? It's looking up. Division comes from dividing here or dividing from God. But when you're thankful, you're forced to say, not what I like, what I want, but what God has done for me. The same thing through the whole passage. God has called us. God has loved us. God has forgiven us. God has united us. Now look to God. Be thankful. Because if God had not done something for you, you'd be lost. And being thankful reminds us that we are here because God first loved us and Christ died for us. And everything else compared to that, it's easy. 
Let's pray.